Okay, we'll go ahead, go ahead and get started for the night. So today we're actually only going to be covering probably seven verses total. Uh, in our preparation work, we were doing research on the end of chapter 14 here, and we discovered that after many, many, many hours, we still weren't anywhere past the research on uh, Melchizedek and what he represents and the significance of him. So we're actually only going to be covering verses 18 to 24 of chapter 14, and then next week we'll do chapter 15. Uh, so we're going to be taking a really, really deep dive today of the, the information about Melchizedek and his significance and what he, what he means and everything like that. So I'm going to read the blessing real quick, and then I'll read through those few, those few verses there at the end of 14. Baruch Atah, Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kishanu, B'mitzvotav, Vesivanu, Lausok, B'duvrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. And I'm going to start at verse 17 and then just read to the end of chapter 14. <clears throat> now, after he returned from defeating Kador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's, or this is the king's valley. Then Malchi Tzedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of El Elyon. He blessed him and said, blessed, blessed be Avram by El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who gave over your enemies into your hand. Then Avram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Avram, give me the people, the possessions take for yourself. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in oath to Adonai El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. Not a thread or even a sandal strap of all that is yours will I take, so that you will not say, I've made Avram rich. I claim nothing but what the, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. <clears throat> okay, so that's all we're really going to cover today for the most part, because there is a lot to unpack, because there's a lot that's going on that we're going to get into in passages other than just this one in Genesis 14. So this section about his name is Melchizedek, but we normally say Melchizedek. This section about him is uh, it's steeped in a lot of mystery and it's really convoluted what information exists out there about it. I've done in-depth research on Malkitzedek and at this point I feel I know less about him than before I did the research in the first place because uh, there's a lot out there that I don't understand. There's concepts that I don't understand. I, there's some stuff, there's a lot of stuff that I feel like we're probably not supposed to understand or not meant to understand, at least right now. So that just makes it, that just makes it hard <clears throat> trying to put it all together is just the, the confusion and the mystery that surrounds this man, Melchizedek. <clears throat> but first, I want to look at all the mentions of Melchizedek that we have in scripture, which actually is very, very few. The, the, uh, the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews, it portrays Melchizedek as a, a huge, important figure in the in representing Yeshua and what Yeshua, his mission was and his, Yeshua's office, for lack of a better word. But there's actually only <clears throat> two mentions of Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. The first is right here in these couple verses in Genesis 14, at where he is called the king of Shalem and a priest of El Elyon, which means God most high. And then the other mention of him is in Psalm 110. And I'll read through that real quick, <clears throat> where it says that it's referring to the coming Messiah. And it says that he would be a Kohen or priest forever, according to the, the order of Melchizedek. Malkit said it. And so let me read through Psalm 110 real quick. It's not too long. 
So it starts out a Psalm of David. Adonai declares to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Adonai will extend your mighty rod from Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will be a freewill offering in a, in a day of your power. In holy splendors from dawn's womb, yours is the dew of your youth. Adonai has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a Kohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. My Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush heads over the entire land. He will drink from a stream along the way, so his head will be exalted. <clears throat> so we see here in this psalm that it's a it's one of the messianic psalms. It's a messianic passage of the Old Testament that's referring to uh, the, the coming Messiah, what he would be. And it refers to him as a Kohen or a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> and this, these two tiny little mentions in the Old Testament are enough that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament would uh, essentially write what is in our Bibles three chapters worth of information about the significance of Melchizedek. Now, just so we have all of the information there, I'm going to read through this portion in Hebrews that talks about Melchizedek. It's gonna, I'm going to read through, um, I'll read through all of chapter five, and then I'm going to read through the last verse of chapter six, and then I'm going to read through all of chapter seven as well. And so <clears throat> we're going to see what, we're going to see essentially all of the information that exists in all of scripture about Melchizedek. So this starts in Hebrews, Hebrews 5. For every Kohen Gadol, which is the, the Hebrew term for high priest, for every Kohen Gadol taken from among men is appointed to act on behalf of people in matters relating to God, so that he may, so that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to empathize with the ignorant and deluded, since he himself is also subject to weakness. For this reason, he has to make offerings for sins, just as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, as Aaron was. So also Messiah did not glorify himself to be made Kohen Gadol. Rather, it was God who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in a different passage, You are, you are a Kohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his life on earth, Yeshua offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God, Kohen Gadol, according to the order of Melchizedek. About this subject, there is much for us to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. For although you ought to be teachers by this time, again, you need someone to teach you the basics of God's sayings. You have come to need milk, not solid food. For anyone living on milk is inexperienced with, teach with the teaching about righteousness. He is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who through practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. <clears throat> and then I'm going to skip ahead to the end of chapter 6 now. Yeshua has entered there as a forerunner on our behalf, referring to behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, the, the closest place to God. Yeshua has entered there as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the Kohen Gadol forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then starting chapter seven, for this Melchizedek was king of Shalem, Kohen of God most high. He met Avraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him into, into him, Avraham, apportioned a tenth of everything. First, by the translation of his name, he is king of righteousness, and then also king of Shalem, which is king of Shalom. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like Ben Elohim, or a son of God, he remains a Kohen for all time. Now see how great this man is. Even Avraham the patriarch gave him a tenth out of the plunder, Indeed, those sons of Levi who received the priesthood have, according to Torah, a command to collect the tithe from the people, that is, from their kin, although they have come out of the loins of Abraham. 
But this one who did not have their genealogy has collected tithes from Abraham and has blessed him, the one holding the promises. Now it is beyond dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, dying men receive tithes, but in the other, one about whom it is testified that he lives on. Through Abraham, even Levi, the one receiving tithes, has paid the tithes, so to speak, for he was still in his father's loins when Melchizedek met him. <clears throat> now, if perfection was based was through the Levitical priesthood, for based on it, the people had been given the Torah, what further need was there for a different Kohen to arise, designated according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron? For whenever the priesthood is altered, out of necessity an alteration of law also takes place. For the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord has sprung forth from Judah concer concerning this tribe. Moses said nothing about Kohanim, or priests. And it is even more evident if another Kohen arises like Melchizedek, one made not by virtue of a Torah requirement of physical descent, but by virtue of the power of an indestructible life. For it is testified, you are a Kohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former requirement is set aside because of its weakness and ineffectiveness, for Torah made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Moreover, it was not without a sworn oath. Others indeed have become Kohanim without a sworn oath, but he with an oath sworn by the one who said to him, Adonai has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a Kohen forever. How much more then has Yeshua become the guarantee of a better covenant? Now on the one hand, many have become Kohanim, who through death are prevented from continuing in office. But on the other hand, the one who does remain forever has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, always living to make intercession for them. For such a Kohen Gadol was fitting for us. Holy, guiltless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to offer up sacrifices day by day like those other Kohanim Gedolim, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. For when he offered up himself, he did this once for all. For the Torah appoints a co for the Torah appoints as Kohanim Gedolim men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the Torah appoints a son made perfect forever. <clears throat> okay, so we just, in a few minutes, read through all portions of the entire Bible that reference Malkitzedek, which is, uh, as you saw, not very much at all. And so <clears throat> there, there's a lot to unpack on not very much information that we're given. And so I, I did a lot of research. And so, uh, as I said, I still haven't come to really any concise conclusions about it, but I'm just going to present everything that I found and then we can all just kind of continue to do research and then just kind of wrestle through this on our own. But uh, <clears throat> so let's, I, I first want to take a look at Genesis 14 to see what we can learn about him. Uh, just Melchizedek, the man in Genesis 14. So it's said that he is called the, the King of Shalem, which uh, as Hebrew says, it means peace. It's from the word, the Hebrew word shalom, which is typically translated to peace. Uh, and we also know from Psalm 76 that shalom was actually uh, Jerusalem or Jerusalem before the Israelites possessed it or before it was called uh, Jerusalem. And so this place, shalom and Jerusalem, they were the same same city, same location. It's just at the time of Genesis 14, it wasn't called Jerusalem yet. It was just called Shalem. Um, and so he was, he, so Melchizedek, with that being said, he was the king of the city and the region that eventually became Jerusalem. And additionally, he's called a Kohen, a, as I said, a priest to El Elyon, which is a name or a title for God that means God most high. <clears throat> And so there's, it, the first thing that really sticks out about this passage is that it calls God by a unique, different name that we don't see near as much in scripture. It calls him El Elyon. And so that's, that's the first thing that kind of sticks out. So if we, 
Additionally, if we look at Melchizedek's name, his name, his name is actually a contraction of two words. It's a contraction of Malchi and Tzedek. And if we look at the literal translation of his name, it would actually be, and so I think it's possible that the writer of Hebrews was, was, uh, was sort of going for a symbolic translation of it rather than a literal word for word translation. Um, and there's other examples of these places where the, this, this structure for a name is translated in the same way, uh, <clears throat> where the, the E suffix ends up making it my something. And so in Genesis 46, 17, there's a man named Malchiel, which means uh, my king is L. And then in Ezra 10, 31, there is another name. It's, there's, a, there's a man by the name of Malchiyahu, which means my king is Yah, which is shorthand for uh, the divine name. And so um, as I mentioned, then the, the writer of Hebrews by by leaving out the my king is righteous or my king is righteousness part was probably trying to go for a <clears throat> either an alternative or a um, symbolic translation of this name uh, to to get it to apply it to Yeshua. And so going beyond that now, there's there's different theories regarding who Melchizedek as the man Melchizedek in Genesis 14 was. Uh, and I, I really have no clue which one it is, if any of these main theories is right, uh, because they all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. And so I'm just going to run through each of these real quick, and I'm going to explain each one and point out each of their strengths and weaknesses in them. So the first theory about who he was is that Melchizedek was actually just a pre-incarnate form of Yeshua which is typically called a theophany, which is a, a sort of physical embodiment or a physical appearance of God. And this is, this is I think, the most common theory in the Christian church, but I, I really think it's the least likely of all possibilities. And uh, firstly about that, as uh, Grayson, my brother, mentioned last weekend during Passover, if Melchizedek really was Yeshua, then his first coming wouldn't be his first coming because he would have already been here on earth walking as a man before. And <clears throat> secondly, the scriptures also explain that Yeshua would be of the order or he would be of the likeness or the manner of Melchizedek, which suggests that he is separate from Melchizedek. Because if he was Malchizedek, then the writer of Hebrews would just say he's he was him. He wouldn't say that he was like him or of the order of him. He would just say uh, he he was him. Uh, and so I don't I don't think that theory really works. And then the second theory that I'm going to get into, actually, so before I leave that first theory, we were we were talking about it a little bit earlier and. There, there's actually a, <clears throat> a portion in Hebrews 7, if you remember when we read it, where it says that just like Melchizedek, Yeshua is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like a son of God, he remains a Kohen for all time. And so uh, that seems to suggest that Melchizedek maybe as the man or maybe as Melchizedek as an idea has been around uh, for all eternity as as long as God has been in existence and as long as everything else is ever going to be in existence and so it seems to suggest that Melchizedek is so the theory is that uh, Shem after the dispersion of Noah's sons after the flood Shem eventually ended up being the this king of Shalem, which would be the future site of Jerusalem. And uh, 
And this, I mean, this is entirely possible, I think, because according to the genealogies in Genesis, Shem actually didn't die until uh, Yaakov or Jacob, uh, his lifetime. And so Shem actually outlived Abraham, and I think he also outlived Isaac, and he died during Jacob's lifetime. And so the, the Jewish sages, as I said, they put forth that Shem was in this region at the time, and he became this righteous king of what would become Jerusalem. Uh, and as I mentioned, there's some flaws in it, I think, which uh, first, other than the fact that Shem was still alive at the time, there's no really additional scriptural evidence that would point to Shem being the same as Melchizedek. And secondly, the author of Hebrews explains that Melchizedek, as I said before, was without mother or father, which if meant literally, it would mean that Shem couldn't be Melchizedek because we're given Shem's genealogy in earlier on in Genesis after the flood. And additionally, this theory, uh, I, I wasn't sure what I saw about this or what I thought about this portion but I, I actually think it's kind of likely that this could have happened, but it, the theory actually doesn't appear in any rabbinic literature, literature until after Yeshua's lifetime. And so that has led some to believe that this Shem theory may actually have been formed sort of as a reaction just to discredit Yeshua as uh, the, the Messiah. And there's, there's, interesting ideas on how Melchizedek being Shem discredits him, but I, I don't necessarily want to go too deep into that, but I, I think that's kind of entirely possible now, so I'm not sure uh, about these first two. There's strengths and weaknesses with them, and then this third one, which is what I have been researching, researching and looking into the past week or so doing lots and lots of research is that Melchizedek actually could have just been an, a normal guy or uh, even even potentially a king of Canaan, which, or a, a king of Canaan that obviously converted to following the, the Hebrew God, the God Most High, since it says he was serving God Most High. But uh, there's a there's a YouTube page and a ministry called 119 Ministries, and they made a video on Melchizedek, and they talk about this theory. They talk about a lot of the historical evidence and what we what we do know about him, and they, they provide some additional insight on it, and so I would encourage anyone listening to this to go watch that video because it gives a lot of insight about who Melchizedek was, but I'm going to try and summarize it and uh, add on some additional information that I've found in my research. <clears throat> As I said, it's possible that he could have been a Canaanite king that converted into serving El Elyon or God Most High. And it's it still has theological implications that I don't really understand. And that may not make sense either, just like the other theories. But at the time, as that video I recommended explained, there was actually a Canaanite god named Zedek. And so in addition to the word, to the Hebrew word Zedek or Zedek, meaning righteous or righteousness, it could also be referring to a Canaanite god uh, whose name was Zedek. And so Melchizedek's name, it might not even mean that my king is righteousness, but it might, it might actually mean my king is Zedek, referring to the Canaanite god at the time. And uh, there's, there's actually another king of Jerusalem, which, as I mentioned before, is what Shalem became. And this is in Joshua 10. And this king of Jerusalem, before the Israelites captured it, he was wicked and he attacked Israel. And his name was Adonizet, <clears throat> which similarly means uh, my Lord is righteous or my Lord is Zedek. And so you have this wicked Canaanite king with essentially the same, basically the same name, uh, except for the, the honoring word in it. You have for Malkit Zedek, 
you have my king is righteous, or my king is Zedek, and for Adoni Zedek, you have my lord is righteous, or my lord is Zedek. And it seems a little inconsistent from what we know about Malkitzedek, that he would be actively serving other gods at the time, uh, given the fact that the author of Hebrews calls him righteous and holds him in such high regard, and as in chapter 7, verse 4, when he says, now see how great a man this is, and, <clears throat> um, and so it's possible that he started out a pagan worshiping pagan gods like Zedek, and he may be converted to following God Most High over time and eventually becoming even a priest to him. Uh, or, as I said, yeah, we don't really know. There's a lot of, it's very con convoluted. There, there's actually other sources that I'm going to read shortly that also hold him to be a righteous figure or at least the representation of a righteous figure. And so uh, it wouldn't make sense that he would be serving other gods at the time, but I think it's still possible that he could have just been a normal guy or a Canaanite king. What we, what we can sort of see from the letter to the Hebrews, though, is that whoever Melchizedek was, the order of Melchizedek that's mentioned in Psalm 110, it seems to be from the letter to the Hebrews to refer primarily to the eternal nature of the coming Messiah, which we now know in hindsight to be Yeshua. And so all of, if you, if you look at these three chapters in Hebrews, when it's talking about Yeshua being of the order of Melchizedek, many of the descriptions are centered around the never-ending nature of Messiah's rule and his service as priest for us. And so let me, let me just read again a couple short verses that show that. So I'm going to read 11 to 17 and 23 to 25. And just pay attention to the how much the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the, the eternal nature of Messiah's rule and his, his service as, a, as our Kohen Gadol. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for based on it, the people have been given the Torah, what further need was there for a different Kohen to arise, designated according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron? For whenever the priesthood is altered, out of necessity, an alteration of law also takes place. For the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord has sprung forth from Judah. Uh, concerning this tribe, Moses said nothing about Kohanim. And it is even more evident if another Kohen arises like Melchizedek, one made not by virtue of a Torah requirement of physical descent, but by virtue of the power of an indestructible life. For it is testified you are a Kohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And now jumping to verse 23. Now on the one hand, many have become Kohanim, who through death are prevented from continuing in office. But on the other hand, the one who does remain forever has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, always living to make intercession for them. And so it seems, at least from the letter to the Hebrews, that the primary aspect, the primary <clears throat> aspect that is spoken of in in terms of the order of Melchizedek is the the forever part of that verse in Psalm so or in Psalm 110 and so it says you will be a you'll be a Kohen forever and that's the portion that the author of Hebrews is emphasizing emphasizing the most in being the most important part of what it means that Yeshua is of the order of Melchizedek, that he will never die. He will, he'll never, he'll never, he'll never pass away. He'll never stop serving as our Kohen Gadol, our high priest. He will, he will be around forever to serve, unlike the Levitical priests who uh, are, well, actually, he also says that another aspect of Yeshua's uh, another distinction of Yeshua being our priest and high priest is that unlike the human Levitical priest, he is sinless. And then again, he will be around forever, unlike the Levitical priest who eventually die and stop serving as priests and high priests. And so additionally, 
as I as I mentioned a little bit there, Yeshua being of the order of Melchizedek seems to involve him not being of the Levitical line, which is actually a primary concern for all of us who hold him to be our high priest. And uh, this has been concerning to me for a little while now after I learned about the, the rules on priesthood and how all of the priests have to come from the line of Levi and even more specifically the line of Aaron in the line of Levi. And so seeing that Yeshua is called our high priest and knowing that he's from the line of Judah and not the line of Levi, that was a bit concerning because it seems like it should discredit him from being able to be our priest or especially high priest. Um, and the author of the letter to the Hebrews it addresses this a little bit as I, as I read there. The term high priest and even just the term priest is something that is dangerously thrown around a lot in definitely the Christian church, but no one, none of us in, or none of us, for us that were in the Christian church and those that are still in the Christian church, like rarely have an idea of like what a Kohen Gadol, what a high priest or even a priest actually is or does. And so I'll just sum it up real quick, just for context, for when it talks about Yeshua being our high priest, the, the priests were, well, I mean, the whole tribe of Levi was set apart. Uh, their portion was for God, or their portion was God, and they their job was to serve God uh, rather than doing other things. Their, their entire purpose was to serve God, to attend to the temple, and to to attend to God's house, wherever, wherever it might be. And so the, the Levites as a whole, they couldn't own land. They couldn't do a lot of the different things that uh, God or that the other tribes could do. God actually, God set them apart from Israel and set apart is actually the basic meaning of the word holy. So God made them holy. God made them set apart and he, he separated them away from Israel to where they actually weren't even considered Israelites necessarily anymore. And even within the Levite tribe that was already set apart, there was another portion of the Levites that were set apart even further, and that was the priests. And even further than that, the high priests, because the, the way it has to work is not all Levites are priests, but not but all priests have to be Levites, because... There were some Levites that were priests that had the, the duty of being a priest. There were some Levites that simply did the, the more menial labor around the temple, sort of cleaning it up, making sure it's uh, tidy and good, good quality and everything like that, and keeping guard and things like that. And so uh, the high priest was the most, the most holy, the most set apart of all the priests, and essentially his his primary job was on Yom Kippur the, the day of atonement each year he would go into the holy of holies the the inner room of the temple or the tabernacle where the ark of the covenant was at and only one person only there was only one time of year where anyone could go in there other the other 364 days no one could ever go into the holy of holies on threat of death from god and so one day of year the high priest would go in and he would, he would essentially intercede for the people of Israel. He would, he would go into there and he would atone for their sins. And he, he, would, he would take the sins of Israel in and uh, intercede on behalf of them and on behalf of, well, himself and Israel as a whole to God. And so it was a very dangerous job, very weighty, very significant job. And so what it means that Yeshua is our high priest, is he is now our perfect interceder for God. So we we can't go into the Holy of Holies ourselves. We can't, we cannot do it with our status because there's there's a hierarchy to uh there's a hierarchy to everything, and you can see that in patterns all throughout scripture, but we don't get to see God's face ourselves. Uh, we have Yeshua to go in on our behalf to intercede for us and to to make atonement for us and so that's what it means that he is our high priest but 
uh, as I mentioned, that is a little bit troubling at first because he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah. And so for the longest time, it was pretty, it was troubling for me because I didn't, I didn't know how he could be a, a qualified priest or especially high priest if he wasn't from Levi and Aaron's line. But the, as I mentioned, the author of Hebrews addresses this in verse 7 and 16, where he explains that Yeshua, he was made, he was one, and, and this is a quote from it, he was one made not by virtue of a Torah requirement of physical descent, but by virtue of the power of an indestructible life. And so uh, he, he's emphasizing again that Yeshua's priesthood is not based on the physical descent from the tribe of Levi, but it's based on the order of Melchizedek, which seems to, to have a lot to do with the, the infinite life of Yeshua, the, the, eternal, the eternal nature of his rule and his service as our high priest. And in explaining that, he also actually says that Yeshua's priesthood is higher than the Levitical priesthood. And he, I think, proves this pretty well. In being the order of Melchizedek, Yeshua's priesthood is actually, it's a, it's a step higher than the Levitical priesthood, even the Levitical high priest. And the author of Hebrews, his logic on this is that the as he says, the Israelites all paid tithes to the Levites, and that this was a this was a common thing. This was a commanded thing for all of Israel to do in the Torah. They had to they had to pay a tithe to the Levites since the Levites couldn't do their own their own paid labor. And the author of Hebrews says that all of Abraham's sons, which includes the Levites, they were still in his loins. It says at the time, and so they weren't born yet. They were still in his loins. And so since all of them were together in the form of Abraham, all of his sons, including the Levites, paid tithe to Melchizedek. And so there's a priesthood that even the Levites uh, or everyone in a symbolic sense pays tribute to. And so by Yeshua being of the order of Melchizedek and not the Levites, it is the author of Hebrews is explaining that everybody, uh, regardless of what tribe you're from, what your role is, everybody pays tribute to Yeshua as our, as our priest and high priest. <clears throat> um, and this, all of this is still a little bit troubling to me, though, not as much as before, because uh, in verse 7-3 in Hebrews, there, there's a portion where it says that Melchizedek and Yeshua, by being of his order, were without beginning of days nor end of life. And so this is a bit troubling because up until, at least up until this verse in Hebrews, there's no mention of Melchizedek having no father or mother and having no genealogy or being eternal. Uh, <clears throat> and Yeshua is supposed to be after his likeness or after his order in that manner. And I think it's very possible, well, I, I can almost guarantee that there's something that, something or a lot of somethings that we've lost about Melchizedek over time that were at one point in time known pretty well. But uh, I, I don't see this as too much of a problem anymore because of something that we're going to explain here in a second. I think it's a lot more likely now that Melchizedek as referenced in Hebrews and as referenced in Psalm 110 is more of an idea rather than talking specifically about the, the physical man in Genesis 14. And so what, what were you going to say? Well, the other thing is the problem with that seven verse three, um, not just that Melchizedek doesn't have, there's no mention of those qualifications for him mm -hmm. but Yeshua has all of those qualifications yeah so I mean they they I mean he has father mother genealogy oh yeah yeah I see what you're saying yeah he has father mother genealogy beginning and end of days yeah yeah but I mean like regardless how you want to look at that is 
father, mother, genealogy, and beginning and end of days. Yeah. Document. Yeah, that's true. So, so, how, so at least for Yeshua, it's got to be talking about like in a, an idea. in a sort of symbolic, yeah, idea sense. So, yeah. I think it's a lot. I think it's very likely that he's doing the same thing with Melchizedek, not talking about the the man Melchizedek who might have just been some ordinary, insignificant guy in himself, but rather the idea of Melchizedek that was developed to be prophetic of Yeshua. And so before, before we get into that idea, there's one more deep dive that I want to do into Melchizedek from other sources, and it's actually really, really interesting. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, if, if you don't know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in, I think, the 1940s, and they were, they're a collection of scrolls that are, that have been preserved for over 2000 years now, I think. So a lot of the, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were written uh, a century or a couple centuries prior to Yeshua. I think they were written a little bit over time. And so they're not all at the exact same time, but a lot of them were written a century or multiple centuries prior to even Yeshua's days. So they were written a century, a couple centuries BC. And so uh, the, in one of these Dead Sea Scrolls, there, there's a whole section on Melchizedek. And as I said, again, it's, it's a century before Yeshua. So it's, it's, not that, it's not like Yeshua and the New Testament's influence could have, could have spurned them to write the things about, or the things in the scroll. But uh, it, they write about what Melchizedek represents and I think you'll find some of these things to be very re reminiscent of Yeshua. And I'm actually going to read a summary by the, the author and scholar Tim Hegg. Tim Hegg, he wrote, he, he's written a multiple volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. And this, this portion that I'm going to read here, this paragraph, is from volume one of his commentary on the Hebrews. And so this, this is what he wrote about the, the scroll that contains information about Melchizedek. And, and for context too, the scroll is, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic sort of end times prediction scroll that these, that these ancient people and the ancient Jews in Qumran wrote about. So they're writing about a lot of end times stuff that apparently was a view in about 100 BC among the Jewish communities. And so this is what Tim, Tim Hegg has to, to summarize about this scroll. In this remarkable text, a number of things stand out. First, Melchizedek is clearly connected to the final restoration and redemption of Israel, both in a physical as well as spiritual way. He proclaims jubilee to the captives, understood as a release from the debt of their sins. He is able to do this because viewing this eschatological day of redemption under the rubric of Yom Kippur, he will atone for all the sons of light and all the people who are predestined to him. The favorable year of Adonai found in Isaiah 61.2 is interpreted here as the year of Melchizedek's favor. Secondly, Melchizedek will establish a righteous kingdom because he will act as the righteous judge. Psalm 82.1 is then offered as proof, interpreted to be speaking of Melchizedek. And then it quotes the psalm where it says, Elohim has taken his place in the congregation of El. And as Tim Hag mentioned, Elohim there is interpreted to be speaking of actually Melchizedek. <clears throat> because Elohim is a generic term for for God or gods or divine beings. Uh, and then continuing his paragraph, here the meaning seems inescapable that Melchizedek is referred to as Elohim. Then Psalm 7, 7 to 8 is added as additional corroboration. And quoting the psalm, it says, over it, i.e. the congregation of El, take your seat in the highest heaven. El will judge the peoples. Thus, in this scroll, Melchizedek is the divine judge who sits in the highest heavens and who executes divine justice upon the righteous and the unrighteous. 
In so doing, he saves the righteous and condemns the wicked, Belial and those with him, bringing in the day of salvation prophesied by Isaiah. And so, uh, again, to, to summarize, this, this portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls that talks about Melchizedek, it refers to, I, I don't think, I don't think at all the, the man Melchizedek from Genesis 14, but rather the idea of Melchizedek. It refers to Melchizedek being a savior that's going to come one day. He's going to proclaim jubilee to the captives, freedom to the captives. Uh, the, the whole idea of the jubilee year, freeing, freeing everybody that was, that was bound before, which is very reminiscent of Yeshua and is actually attributed to Yeshua in a lot of cases. It refers to Melchizedek being a righteous judge one day who is going to condemn the wicked and uh, save the righteous, and he's going to lead the day of salvation, and he essentially will lead an apocalyptic war at the end of times against evil and all who do evil. And so Again, as I mentioned, this is 100 years before Yeshua even lived, and this idea about, or these, these very, the spiritual ideas about the order of Melchizedek, or the idea of Melchizedek, they were already around, and they were already being passed around in at least some Jewish communities, and, uh, uh, oh, and I, I forgot to bring up this portion again, but it also mentions that Melchizedek, in a way, at least, is one with Elohim or God himself, potentially. And so Melchizedek, in this portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls, he's eventually to set us free from the penalty of our sin, as I said, in the manner of the Jubilee year, the sort of final Jubilee that's prophesied in Isaiah 61. He's going to atone for all of the sons of light and in the, the, the manner of Yom Kippur. And so uh, all of this information that predates Yeshua describes him almost exactly. And so I think this gives, I think this gives a lot more credence that Yeshua is number one, the prophesied Messiah, but uh, number two, the, the man, the Messiah, that would be eventually the order of Melchizedek, given the, the similarity between these two. And so sort of in summary about Melchizedek now, that was, that was a lot of information. That was a big information dump. And so I'm going to kind of summarize what all, we've, what all we've pulled from this so far about Melchizedek and his relation to Yeshua. And so uh, regarding this, we can, see, we can see that, again, we're not quite sure who Melchizedek as a man was. Uh, we're told that he was without father or mother, and he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And again, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming the latter, but I don't know if it is meant in a literal manner where he, the man Melchizedek from Genesis 14, literally didn't have a mother or father, and he's literally some divine being that has no beginning or end of days, or if it is in a symbolic manner to get across the intended message about Yeshua. I, I really don't know. I'm not going to make any, I can't make any claim that I know for sure. But uh, what we, what it seems to be though, is that it's the symbolic idea because the letter to the Hebrews was written mainly in a very midrashic in a very symbolic manner, which can be very confusing at times. And <clears throat> additionally, there's this, there's a, there's a textual and linguistic tool that I found in my research that is typically referred to as arguing from silence. And essentially this idea is when writers or authors or uh, in this case, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, it's when they, it's when they regard the Bible's silence on certain topics as just as important as what it actually says. And so the author of Hebrews, in a lot of instances, uh, for the idea of no, no father or mother included, he is arguing from silence on that because we, we don't have any 
further information about Melchizedek. We don't, we're not told about his origins or where he ended up after that. And so the author of Hebrews is arguing from silence. He's saying it's, uh, he's taking this Midrashic interpretation tool and he's saying, well, it's, it's very important that Melchizedek, that this information is mentioned about Melchizedek. And here's what, here's the significance of that. And so, uh, <clears throat> if that is, if this is what's happening, if the author of Hebrews is arguing from silence using this tool, then since the Bible never records the birth or the death of Melchizedek, then he is primarily symbolically without father or mother, as the author of Hebrews explains, which is not meant literally, but as a sort of, as a type or a foreshadow of what would come. And this is where it gets into, I think, the distinction between Melchizedek as the man and Melchizedek as the idea. And so um, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm starting to think now that maybe Melchizedek in Genesis 14 was just a, a normal, random, insignificant man in, in the grander scheme of things, but that God made this encounter with Abraham come about and he he gave the details as specifically in the manner that he did in order to to be able to craft an idea that goes so far beyond just the man Melchizedek and so uh, I'm thinking that God crafted this idea or this picture of Melchizedek that went way beyond the man Melchizedek to lead us or to to paint a picture of the coming Messiah which we find out would be Yeshua and the author of Hebrews would eventually go on to take this idea of Melchizedek and explain a lot of the the attributes and the qualifications of Yeshua through this information about Melchizedek that well it it's not mentioned anywhere in scripture a lot of it like the father or mother thing but he he's working with that information and he's he's using he's using the information about the idea of Melchizedek to to point to uh to point to Yeshua or Messiah um and so I think it's very likely that all of these all of these attributes that are attributed to Melchizedek are really written about Yeshua and they they exist primarily for the purpose of foreshadowing and not to describe necessarily the the physical man Melchizedek that lived in Genesis 14. Um, and so maybe the references to Melchizedek after Genesis 14 are just really representative of this much larger picture and uh, just pointing towards Yeshua. I, I don't know. Or maybe Melchizedek, as I said, or as I brought up before, maybe he the man himself is something much larger and much greater than we typically think of or understand and again as i mentioned before i'm not going to make any definitive claim that this is definitely the right answer because i have no clue but where i'm leaning right now is that Mel melchizedek is more an idea and the order of melchizedek isn't something that the man melchizedek, melchizedek passed down through generations to yeshua but an idea that revolves around uh, this man, this or this this nature that will eventually be attributed to Yeshua the Messiah. And additionally, what we what we've learned from this very little information about Melchizedek is uh, we know that Yeshua is the one prophesied of in Psalm one ten that would be of this order of Melchizedek, as it says, a Kohen forever, uh, which that's whatever the order even means because we still as i as i mentioned we're still trying to wrestle through what even the order of melchizedek is but from what it's what it looks like and from what the author of hebrews says is that yeshua is the one who has fulfilled this prophecy he's over the order of melchizedek uh, and i don't think i mentioned it before but to add to the confusion the the, the Hebrew word, I looked it up earlier, the Hebrew word for order, when it says order of Melchizedek, is only used five times in the entire Old Testament. And 
it seems like every time it's used in a different way. So there, I, I really have no clue what order is even supposed to mean in the Hebrew. What I did see though that I found interesting is that for some reason the word order is, I think it was divra, and it is, it's it's weirdly a a female. A, a grammatical female form of the word devar, which you might know to mean word or thing. And so it's like, it's a, it's the female form of the root word devar, word or thing. And so maybe it means the same thing in this context. And maybe it would be, maybe it would be better rendered the, the thing of Melchizedek or the, the word of Melchizedek. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too sure, but that word, so that word itself is really mysterious and it really kind of obscures it a little bit too because it's mentioned so little and it's used so differently each time it is mentioned in scripture. Additionally, what we've learned, Yeshua not being of the Levite line, it shouldn't trouble us about his ability to be our priest and our high priest because, as I mentioned before, his order is seems to be something symbolic that's above all other statuses. And so he's, he is our high priest, not because of physical descent as laid out in the Torah, but because of uh, his never ending life, the author of Hebrews says. Um, and he, additionally, he's, he's perfect and blameless. And the, even, even the Levites, uh, which would mean everybody pays tribute to him. Um, and then Lastly, regarding the, the information about Melchizedek, I, I want to emphasize again that we know next to nothing about him because there's not really much about him to work with. And I've done hours and hours of research these past couple of weeks on Melchizedek. And I've been trying to figure out who it is. And as I said before, it's like the more I learn and the more I see in my research, the less I feel like I know about him uh, or, or who the man Melchizedek was. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that we're supposed to know anything about him because maybe it's supposed to be mysterious in a lot of ways. I mean, I, and that's not, that is not a new or unique thing because there's a lot of issues in scripture and in our faith that we are not allowed to know about, at least right now. And I think that's generally pretty troubling for us because we, we like to have the answers for everything. And <clears throat> I think in a lot of ways, the Christian church has conditioned into our minds a satisfaction with easy, fast answers. And so I don't, I think we're, I think we've been conditioned a bit to not really, not really question or not really go deeper into just accept, just accept the first thing we hear because we're really, really uncomfortable with having questions and having questions that we don't have the answers to. And so with this, we are just going to have to sit in that discomfort. We're not going to find out that I don't think much more information about Melchizedek because there's not really much to go off of. All I'm doing with that being said today is just putting together the information that I found and I'm just presenting it. I don't, I don't really have any concise conclusions about it. I won't make any definitive claims about any of the information. I'm just presenting what I found, uh, trying to come to an, come to a, a right interpretation of the scriptures and try to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying about Melchizedek and his relation to Yeshua. I, I want to encourage anyone listening, uh, as usual, to, to do your own in-depth research as well. Don't just take my words or any of my citations words for it. Uh, and so just do, do research if you're interested and uh, try and try and figure this out for yourself. And uh, on the Google Drive that I have linked on the, the show page, I'm going to be putting a lot of the resources I used in it. And so uh, I think I mentioned before the video by 119 Ministries, that video had, it was, it was packed with information about Melchizedek, and that was probably the most useful resource, but I'll be 
I'll be linking a lot more in the resources documents that I have in the Google Drive for the study. Yep, that's everything that I have for today. So do you guys have anything else? That was a big information dump, so we can all kind of just sit with that, chew on it for the next six months or so. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my my uh the thing that I'm stuck on is that verse seven three or chapter seven verse three business with uh, without father mother genealogy beginning at or end of days just yeah. such a picture of God I mean I don't know how else it could be I don't yeah. know anybody else that could have those characteristics mm -hmm. aside from him and yeah. you know what that draws into that picture if anything or you know what yeah. I mean maybe I don't know yeah. So maybe Melchizedek was a human, a human that God, or a, a, human, a human representation of, I don't know. Or like a human just, form that God yeah, right. I, I just, I really don't think that it's Yeshua though. Like I, I think it's a bit more likely that anybody in all of existence, like I, I think it's more likely that you could have been Melchizedek because yeah. It, the wording of Hebrews seems to suggest that Melchizedek and Yeshua are separate <clears throat> beings, right. though Yeshua takes on the attributes that were prophesied and stuff. <clears throat> and it would, to me, kind of makes sense that it would be, I don't know, it, that would, he would follow, Yeshua would follow the order of his father, not necessarily of, of someone some like guy. yeah 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 i think that would make sense too so. but in all reality it's probably something that we haven't even considered we'll option, one day. option g yeah option option x <laughs> yep that yeah. we haven't even considered and probably never will consider <laughs> but but it's not going to be for lack of trying yeah just like with everything else we'll we're not going to get there probably ever, Give but best shot. yeah, but it's not going to be because we're being lazy and apathetic. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything else that you guys have? Okay, with that, we will end the study for today, and then next week we're going to continue on with Genesis 15, and then uh, we'll, we'll keep moving right along. <laughs>